John chapter 17, beginning in verse 6. Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. In middle, medieval times, castles were all the rage. And around the 11th century, castles began popping up all across the European landscape. Royalty or wealthy rulers in certain areas began building castles as a sort of status symbol, as something that would indicate their wealth, that is something that would indicate their, uh, their power. And uh, they were often in strategic locations, offering defense of important economic positions. When we think of castles, uh, we might think of a bygone area or might think of our, our favorite Disney princess movie. But, uh, but castles were a key part of the development of the Western world. And castles, one thing that was true about them is that they were heavily fortified. And as castle technology progressed around 12th century, heavily fortified towers were constructed at the center of the castle. These structures were called the tower keep, or we might just call them the castle keep, or the keep. And they were intended to be a place of retreat or refuge if the castle came under attack by enemies. The ruler could retreat into the keep where food was stored, where arms were, were kept, where there was access to water, and a defensive position was ensured. And it's not, a, it's not very uh, surprising to us that a lot of thought and energy was given to this defensive position to shore up weak points, to ensure that if attacked, those who retreated to the keep could hold out for a very, very long time. The prayer that Jesus prays here in John chapter 17, we've looked at the middle section 
or I read the middle section just a moment ago, and that's what we're going to consider together this morning. But the prayer as a whole, beginning in verse 1 through verse 26, has three discernible parts. Um, the first part is what we explored last week together in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. I, not last week, two weeks ago, sorry. Two weeks ago, we, we thought about verses 1 through 5, Jesus' prayer for himself. Ne- uh, next week, we'll consider verses 20 through 26. That's the final part where Jesus prays for all that the Father will give to him. Not just those who the Father gives to him here, uh, in this context, in this very moment, but all that the Father gives to him and all who would believe, including you and I. That's in verses 20 through 26. But in verses 6 through 19, which again, which I just read, Jesus prays specifically for his disciples. Specifically those who God the Father gave to him out of the world. Those who stood with Jesus and followed him on earth. Those who were called by Jesus. Those who had listened to Jesus. Seen him perform signs and wonders. And now we're coming and hearing his final words to them and hearing him pray before he is arrested, tried, and crucified. So again, we're focusing on this middle section. And you'll remember, look back up your Bible to verse 33 of chapter 16, the very last verse in chapter 16. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the last teaching, the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he is crucified, and the the last teaching that he'll give to them until he rises again. The disciples have received a lot of information, even the last few hours from Jesus, and things are coming into focus for them. They've said just in a, a couple of uh, verses ago that Jesus is now speaking plainly, and they're beginning to understand all of these things that he has said to them that were maybe difficult to discern, that they looked at each other and said, what is he saying to us? Now they're coming into focus. They're coming into view for the disciples, and it's abundantly clear that Jesus is going away, and that The disciples are going to face hatred on behalf of Jesus. That tribulation is coming their way. Difficulty, suffering, hardship are all on deck for these 11 guys Jesus is praying for here in John chapter 17. Jesus, knowing full well that his disciples are going to come under heavy fire, both as he is arrested, tried, and crucified, and then after he comes back and commissions them to go and take the gospel into all of the world, he knows that they're going to come under heavy fire. And so here in John chapter 17, he prays for them. He prays for them in the face of what they are about to endure. He prays three things that we can discern from this section of text. First, that the Father will keep him in his name. Second, that the Father will keep them from the evil one. And finally, that the Father will sanctify them, the disciples, in truth. So, as tribulation, suffering, difficulty, hardship, stand at the castle gates, the Father, through the Son, 
will bring each and every one of these disciples into the impenetrable keep and they will be preserved. Those three things that I just mentioned are what's going to guide our time together this morning. We're going to explore each of these things that Jesus prays for his disciples in this text. Again, the three things are this, that they be kept in the name of the Father, that they be kept from the evil one, and that they be sanctified in truth. So first, kept in the name of the Father. Jesus prays that they would be kept in the name of the Father. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. When you know that names are important, names are important to our culture and they've been important all throughout human history. Our names often indicate, our last name or surname often indicates what our ancestors did vocationally or just who our ancestors were, like Johnson or Anderson, or what they did vocationally, like Smith or like Taylor or like Reeves, or Baumgartner, tree farmer. (laughs) I don't even know where John is. I think he's hidden up there. Oh, he's waving to me. Okay. First names, oftentimes, at least in our culture, the way this is developed, is that, uh, that they indicate a hope that we have for our children. We named our twins Olive and Abigail. Olive. From Psalm 128.3, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. We named Abigail, uh, well, we named her Abigail. I don't know, when I started that sentence, there was nowhere to go except say that. Um, Which means her father's joy. Or we name our children after men or women that we admire, hoping they'll grow up to emulate that person. Or first names might indicate a truth or a value that's dear to us. We named Tev, Tevya, Tevya, God is good. Or Sersha, our youngest, her name's freedom. Jesus in verse 11, keep them in your name. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Jesus' prayer echoes. The opening lines of Psalm 54. King David writes, he says, Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. In these two lines of the psalm, King David parallels save and vindicate. You can see it on the screen. Save and vindicate and name and might. The name of the Lord contains power. In the name of the Lord is the power to save. This, is, this power is the power that Jesus has given to Jesus. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. The power that Jesus says he manifests or puts on display. Look at verse 6. I have put on display. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They have seen the power of God in Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, Jesus says, The disciples will know that everything that the Father has given to Jesus is from the Father. The name. The power. 
The second half of verse 11 then. Keep them in your name which you have given to me that they may be one even as we are one. And we're going to see the, this power in the name of the Lord has a physical sense. We're going to see it as it, as it plays itself out in chapter 18. It's put on display for us in this when, when, the, when Judas comes bringing a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Jesus asks, whom do you seek? If you just go down the page a little bit, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18. Jesus said to them, or, Je- or, Judas says, who, or Jesus says, who do you seek? Then they answer him. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The scene is given to us to indicate that the name of the Father has been given to the Son, and in the name of the Lord there is, there is power, power to save. Consider also that scripture compares the name of the Lord to a place of refuge, to a strong tower. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is like the castle keep. So when Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, he is praying that the disciples would be secured, protected, preserved by the power of God. Not in their own strength, not in what they could conjure, not in the things that they thought would protect them, but in the name of the Father. Paul will say it in Romans 10.13, that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just like David's words in Psalm 54.1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Jesus, praying for his disciples here, knows that his disciples will be preserved, they'll be secured, they'll be protected by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we oftentimes seek protection, preservation, and places other in places that are ultimately vulnerable to enemy attack. We try to protect ourselves by doing the right thing in our daily lives, or by being kind to others, or just having good theology. Where do you tend to seek refuge that is not the name of the Lord? Where do you think that your life is hidden, that is not the name of the Lord. You think, yeah, God saves me by his power, then I preserve myself through, pick a thing. This line of thinking leads to anxiety, worry, joylessness, Self-focus. Why? Because you're always concerned that you're not doing enough. You're always concerned that you don't do enough in your daily life to retain God's favor. But friends, you simply cannot protect yourself, preserve yourself 
in the way that Jesus prays for his disciples here. In the name of the Lord. Jesus prays that the disciples would be kept in the Father's name because he knows the type of difficulty, the type of persecution, the type of hardship, the type of suffering that is coming their way. And all of it, all of it would be too much of them. A simple drop of tribulation would have crushed them if, their name, if the name of the Lord had not been their refuge. It's too much for you too. On your own, you're a house made of sticks in a tornado. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. So Jesus prays first that to be kept in the name of the Father, that the power of God would secure them. But then Jesus prays secondly, that the disciples would be kept from the evil one. Verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I think we get an expanded view of what John writes here, what Jesus prays here in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 22. Right before Jesus predicts Peter's denial of him, In Luke's gospel, Jesus says to Peter, this is Luke 22, 31 through 32. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. says that Satan wants to sift him like wheat. And sifting wheat is a metaphor. And in ancient times, wheat was sifted through a tool like a strainer. As the wheat was shaken, dirt and other impurities would be separated out from, from the wheat to make it usable, to make it pure. We consider this to be a refinement process. One that's not pleasant. It's rather violent if you put yourself in the position of the wheat. But what results is something pure, something usable, something good, something that God intends. And so Jesus is saying, pain is coming for you, Peter. Pain is on the doorstep. It's knocking. You're about to get rattled. Satan is going to come after you with everything that that he's got and he's going to shake you to your core. And what is Satan's goal in this? Break his faith. Satan is an accuser. When Peter denies Jesus three times, can you imagine the type of opportunity that gave for accusation? You never really loved him. He'll never forgive you for this. You'll never be able to do the things that Jesus commanded you. Maybe you've had similar thoughts. Maybe you have similar thoughts when you've stumbled, fallen into sin, 
repeatedly. This accusation is a work of Satan. Accusing you, using half-truths to deceive you, using the line that he used on Eve in the garden, did God actually say, did God actually say that you're his child? Surely, surely that can be true considering what you've done. Accusation, deception is how Satan attempts to break our faith. But look at what Jesus does for Peter and look what he does for his disciples in John 17. He prays, he prays for them. He, Jesus prays that the disciples would be kept from the evil one here in John 17. He says to Satan, or he says to Peter, when Satan has demanded to sift him like wheat, he says, but I have prayed for you. And we see him pray for him right here. Jesus prays that the disciples would be kept from the evil one. Don't miss though what Jesus says leading into what he says, or what he prays in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is leaving the world. He says this in verse 13, and many times before. But now I'm coming to you, he says, coming to the Father. That these things that I may speak in uh, that I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The disciples are staying. Jesus is going. But Jesus doesn't pray that they'd be taken out of the world. He does pray that they would be preserved when the accusation comes, when the deception comes, when the difficulty, suffering, and tribulation open avenues for Satan to accuse them and deceive them, that they would be kept from the evil one. Consider this, brothers and sisters. Jesus specifically prays that the disciples won't be taken out of the world, but they would have what they need in order to endure. He doesn't pray that they would be spared difficulty or tribulation. He doesn't pray that they would have an easy time or safe travels, safe travels taking the gospel to the ends of the, the, ends of the earth. He doesn't pray that stuff would go well. He says, I hope this all goes well for them. Instead, he prays that they would be kept from the evil one, from the accusation, the deceptions that would come in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and tribulation. Jesus prays ultimately that their faith would remain intact. To be kept in the name of the Father and to be kept from the evil one. Jesus prays this for Peter, and he prays it for his disciples, knowing full well the onslaught coming their direction. He prays that their faith won't fail. So Jesus prays that they be kept in the name of the Father, they be kept from the evil one, and then the third thing that he prays, that they would be sanctified in the truth. This is quite different than what Jesus prays for them earlier. It's quite different. 
Since Jesus prays for them that they would not be taken out of the world but continue in it, what then? They'll have what they need to endure in the face of suffering and difficulty. For their faith to remain intact when the evil one accuses and deceives. But now this says, what then? Since Jesus prays that his disciples will not be taken out of the world, but continue in it, what then? This portion is the answer. The disciples will be preserved and protected by the power of the Lord, secured in him from the accusations and deceptions of Satan. And now, they're kept in the castle keep. And now, the active portion. Jesus prays that the disciples' lives would give evidence of the life that they have in him. When Jesus prays that the disciples would be sanctified in truth, he is praying that their lives, the disciples' lives, would give evidence of the life that they have in him. What does it mean to be sanctified? The word sanctify simply means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be used for honorable use. Sanctification is the process by which we are made holy, by which we are set apart for honorable use. Holiness, being set apart, is living according to God's word. So lives of personal holiness, lives that are set apart, are marked by living according to what God commands us. Leviticus 11.45, often quoted in the New Testament, says, For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You shall therefore be set apart, as I am set apart. And Peter, Peter quotes this in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Personal holiness is not passive. We are sanctified. And as we are sanctified, as we are set apart, we are active. Because to be sanctified means to be continually living according to what God commands us. Look at verse 18. As you sent them into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The disciples are sent into the world. Yes, they are protected deep within the impenetrable castle keep in the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower, but they are also sent into the world. Maybe that doesn't jive logically in our brains, but this is the reality. Nothing can touch the life that they have in Christ Jesus. And so they are propelled into the world, given full confidence and assurance that that life that they have in Christ cannot be touched. Consider also that Jesus prays that they will be sanctified in the truth. They will be made holy in truth. They will be set apart in truth. If we're going to be sanctified, if you and I 
It needs to be in truth. Because again, how will you stand in the face of deception? How will you stand in the face of accusation that the evil one brings to your door? When you face hardship, difficulty, tribulation, trial, suffering, and Satan points and says, look at how you handled that. What a fool. How will you handle it? The answer is in truth. Satan says again to Eve in the garden, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve catches it. She replies that they can eat of any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they will die. How does Satan reply? You will not surely die. And the deception is complete. She sees the fruit with her eyes. She sees that it's good to eat and she takes it and eats it. Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify them, the disciples, in the truth. Then he says, your word is truth. The word of God is the truth through which we are sanctified, through which we are set apart. What God says to us in his word is true. What God says about who we are, what God says about who he is, and what God says about how we should live or what evidences our lives should be. How are we set apart for use by God through the truth of God's word? Jesus ends this little section, this center section of John 17 in verse 19 by saying, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Consecrate is another word for setting apart for a holy purpose. Jesus sets himself apart. Jesus is about to be the once and for all sacrifice by going to the cross, set apart for that purpose. Through his sacrifice, the disciples and us, all who are joined to Christ by faith, would be set apart by God for God's purposes. So Jesus prays in the center section of John chapter 17 that the disciples would be protected from the evil one by the power of God and they would be set apart to be used by God. A few things I want you to walk away with this morning to consider as takeaways. The section is so rich. There's so many things here that I could say, and, but I'm going to just give you, I think, three, three things. The first thing that I want you to take away from this text is this, that the goal of the preservation of the disciples is their unity. The goal of the preservation of the disciples is their unity. Again, Jesus praying that they'd be kept in the name of the Father. Jesus says the result of being kept in the name of the Father is that they may be one even as we are one. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus prays that the disciples would be preserved to display the unity of the Godhead. He says it. That they may be one even as 
even as we are one. The unity that is experienced by God the Father and God the Son is the goal, the reflection. They want to reflect themselves in, in us. God wants to reflect himself in his people. And the unity that they have, reflecting it to the world. God protects and preserves us by the power of his name so that we might be unified amongst ourselves as a church. Those who are kept in the name of the Father are unified with one another. Unfortunately, in the modern world, in modern Christianity, what oftentimes happens is that we begin to think of ourselves the way that the culture thinks about itself, as units rather than unified. But we are not simply units. We're not just primarily individuals. In the name of the Father, we are unified. So be careful, brothers and sisters. If Jesus says that being kept in the name of the Father results in unity amongst believers, what do you think Satan's strategy is going to be as a result? What do you think that his strategy will be to disrupt that unity? First, he'll seek to isolate you. He'll seek to push you out by lying to you about how different you are from the people in this room. Maybe he'll lie to you telling that somehow you're better than the people here. Or maybe he'll lie to you telling you that these people aren't like you. Or maybe he'll lie to you telling you that your personality type doesn't quite fit. Or maybe he'll lie to you telling you that the people here, they don't really care about you. Or maybe he'll lie to you telling that you're so much worse than these people here. You don't belong. Friends, if you've heard these things in your mind, know for certain, they're not from God. Those things are not from God. They're a strategy of Satan. Reject them. Resist them. The scheme to disrupt the unity that Jesus talks about prays for his disciples here. The second strategy that Satan will use to disrupt unity within the local church is to tell you that God is incapable of preserving you. That God is, or that he does not desire to preserve you. Or that you have to preserve yourself. But everything that we've learned here in this text is that is the, is the contrary. God is capable of preserving you. In the name of the Father, the very power of God applied to keeping you. And God does desire to preserve you. God the Son, Jesus Christ, prays for the preservation of the disciples here. They be kept in the name of the Father. And your preservation is not contingent on yourself. You are preserved by the power of God. Not anything that you can do or anything that you can conjure. Psalm 133.1 Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Will the accuser, will Satan not be provoked by things that are good and pleasant according to God? Of course he will. He will, he will accuse and deceive with the goal of dividing which, that which God has brought together. 
So if you're here this morning and you're distant from a local church, if you're not unified with a body of believers, know that being kept in the power of God is meant to bring you into unity and fellowship within the local church. Those who are kept by the power of God are preserved for unity. Those who are preserved are joined together. That's the first thing I want you to take away this morning. The goal of the preservation of the disciples is their unity. Second thing then, note the joy of unity will be experienced by the disciples. In verse 13, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When Jesus goes to the Father, the unity that he has with the Father will become a great joy to the disciples. Because they will now experience and participate in and take part in that unity. Kept in the name of the Father, the disciples and subsequently us in this room can have this same kind of unity that God the Father and God the Son have experienced for all eternity. And what is that intended to do in us? It's intended to cause us to rejoice. To, to have great joy with the recognition that God has saved us and set us apart in his truth. For his purposes, for use by him. Do you think of the gathering of the local church as a joyous occasion? If you're in Christ, you're united with the men, women, boys, and girls in this room. You're united with them in Christ. And how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Maybe you object. I don't feel united with these people. Let me give you three potential reasons why, very briefly, why you might not feel united with the men and women and boys and girls in this room. First is this. It may, because, may be because you're not actually a Christian. You may not actually be joined to Christ. You're not being preserved by the power of God. You're dead in your transgressions and sins, and therefore being an individual living for self exclusively sounds just fine to you. If that's you this morning, come to Christ. Trust in Christ. Leave your sin and trust in Jesus. If that's you this morning, if you're wondering more of what that means, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Jesus alone can forgive you and bring you to the Father and unite you with the believers in this room. So, if you feel like I don't have anything, there's nothing here that unites me to these people, then maybe that's true. Maybe there isn't. But you can be. Jesus extends himself to you this morning. Trust in Christ. The second reason you may not feel united with the people in this room is because you're nursing a sin. Because you're nursing unforgiveness against someone maybe even in this room. 
or you're bitter or you're slandering others in your life regularly. You know the things that Jesus commands you to do, but you're holding out for a better opportunity. The answer here is similar to the answer to the first. It's repent and turn away from your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Hold on to that sin no longer. Turn to Christ. The third reason you may not feel united with the people in this room is that you may say, I'm a Christian. I've trusted Jesus. And I'm not bitter. I don't think I'm bitter towards anyone in here. I want to be united with these people, but I don't feel like it. The remedy for this is also repentance and faith. Because you've got to repent of trusting in your feelings. That your feelings are some source of truth that stands in opposition to the truth that's communicated here in God's word. God has united us with himself. And united with him, we are united with one another. Whatever your feelings say, may, does not, cannot have any bearing on that truth. Just because we don't always experience the joy of the union doesn't mean that we're not truly united. So, the result of our being preserved by the power of God is our unity. And when we experience, when we participate, when we partake in the unity that Jesus has given to us in himself, we have the joy of Christ in us. Final takeaway this morning. Final takeaway. We measure our unity by our set-apartness in truth. Sometimes Christians will say things like, doctrine divides, or we need to be less rigid on the things that we say that we believe in matters of biblical truth in order to have and to preserve unity. But this is not what Jesus prays at all, and not what the Bible communicates at all. Our unity as Christians within the local church is based on our holiness, is based on our sanctification, is based on our set-apartness. And where does it come from? It comes in truth. As those who are preserved by the power of God, as those who are being kept from the evil one, as those who are set apart and therefore united, we are set apart in truth. And what is truth? Jesus says it here. Sanctify them in the truth. Verse 17. Your word is truth. Unity doesn't come through doctrinal compromise. That's not what Jesus says at all. He doesn't say lighten up a little bit. And then you'll have unity. Rather, unity comes to us as a result of being grounded fully in truth. Grounded in Jesus, who is the Word who took on flesh. Brothers and sisters, be set apart in truth. So that the joy that comes in the unity through the preservation of being kept in the name of the Father will be ours in Jesus. This, friends, is what Jesus prays for his disciples. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, would you, we pray now, 
as Jesus prayed for his disciples, that you would set us apart in your truth. Give us a hunger for your word this week as we go from this place. Cause us to desire it with all of our heart. Cause us to seek satisfaction in your word and your word alone. Cause us to see with eyes that are wide open the reality that we are preserved in the name of the Father in a power that in a power that cannot be shaken, cannot be touched, cannot be challenged. God, your word is true. Cause us as your people to see the unity that we have together in Christ as those who have been set apart by Christ. Cause us to see Jesus as the source of these things, as the thing that is most beautiful to us. God, we trust you. We trust you when we face tribulation and hardship, suffering, difficulty. We trust us that you will keep us from the accusations and the deceptions of the evil one. Continue to set us apart in your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.